0: Our scripture reading today comes from 1 Samuel, chapter 8, verses 1 through 22. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariot. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards, and give them to his servants. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. So then Samuel said to the men of Israel, Go, every man, to his city. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Lauren. We are starting a new series today called Looking for a King. And we are beginning this series, it'll be for five weeks. This will be our Advent series. Uh, It is not Advent yet. If you know your church calendar, we have uh, one more week before that happens. Those are the four weeks that lead up to Christmas. Um, But we're starting it early one week so that I can do uh, an introduction to this series. We're looking at the King's of Israel. There's a time in Israel's history when uh, there were three kings and all of Israel was together. And, um, and we're going to be looking at that time at each of the three kings, the King Saul, King David, and King Solomon over these next three weeks. And then we will spend the last week looking at our everlasting King, King Jesus, who is the King that we are looking for. But I wanted to begin today by looking at the passage where Israel asks or rather demands that a king be placed over them as a way to introduce this series and to see what it is that we look to when we're looking for a king. But before we dive in, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we know that your word does not return void, that whenever it is read or spoken preached. It always accomplishes exactly what you desire it to. And so we come humbly to this passage from centuries, many centuries, millennia ago, and ask that you would help us to see our lives in this story, in this grand design, in this beautiful unfolding story of the coming King of Jesus. And I pray that He would be honored, lifted up, and that we pray these things in His name. Amen. So when I was a teenager, I decided to start my first business. I started a pressure washing business. This was my first endeavor um, to try to make money. And so I, I was very ambitious. I decided that uh, I would wash people's cars and wash people's porches and and do uh, in their houses. and um, And so I began this Adventure. I was ambitious, and my ambition was a good thing. The problem was I had no idea what I was doing, whatsoever, and so I had no experience pressure washing. For instance, that tends to matter in a business. Um, I was using—I played around with my dad's pressure washer before, and that's what I used to start my business. And um, and from there, from the moment that I decided to do it, it was really a comedy of errors. Uh, first being that I volunteered to pressure wash my cousin's gutters. That was going to be a, a pro bono. I did it for free because I needed to practice. So I you know, went over to my cousin's house and cleaned out her gutters, the leaves that were in her gutters. And while I was on the roof uh, cleaning out these gutters, The hose went too close to the the hot engine and burst this expensive hose and ended up having to pay $150 and the thing wouldn't work uh, until I fixed that part. And in the meantime, I had spread leaves all over her driveway uh, that I had no means of washing away and they were stuck there and so I couldn't even rake them away and so it was a disaster. I decided I needed to drum up some business. So I started putting flyers inside of people's mailboxes which is against the law, uh, apparently. (laughs) So you can put things on people's doors, et cetera, but you can't put things in people's actual mailboxes, at least not where I was. So uh, I got a call from a police station telling me to cease and desist. That was discouraging. Um, I remember this one job that I took in this lady uh, that she had this patio and it was it was like all contained, and the, the ground wasn't level. It kept, you know, it went down. Like there should be a drain down there, but there wasn't. And, and so, uh, you know, basically, I, I just kept moving dirt around. It was just this closed system, and I didn't even clean anything, I think. in the three days that I spent there uh, on this massive porch, and after the third day, she paid me a little money, I think just taking pity on me. So my business lost money it was a bad endeavor. I was ambitious, that was good, but I went about it completely the wrong way. And the result was, it was unsatisfying, and it was costly. Even though it came from a good desire, it was unsatisfying, and it was costly. And I was thinking about that this week, and my parents, who were probably watching me, my parents let me do this. My parents let me fall completely on my face. And they, you know, my dad knows about business and such. He gave me a few pointers, but he basically let me go through this process, this growth process, acknowledging my good ambition, but also letting me see the results, the costly and unsatisfying results of my labor. There's a similar principle at work when we look at this story of Israel wanting a king. They're demanding that God give them a king, a human king in Israel. Now, it may seem on in first reading of this passage that this is an entirely negative desire, that they are doing the wrong thing. In fact, it says that they're rejecting God. But actually, as we're going to see, there was nothing wrong with their desires for a human king. There's nothing wrong with their desires for a human king. What was wrong was the way that they demanded it. And in demanding this king we see that ultimately their desires are unsatisfying and costly to the people of God. But interestingly, like my parents, God lets them do it. He permits this to happen. He says, let them appoint this king, even knowing what is going to happen in this story. And in fact, God not only lets them do it, He actually uses their their demand for a king to instill in them a desire that he will then fulfill in Jesus Christ. He actually uses the idea of the kingship in his purposes and in his plans. It is through the desire for a king that, Jesus brings us, that God brings us his son, Jesus. And actually beginning here, even before that in the book of Judges, Um, There is a desire for a king that really shapes the rest of the biblical story. You could say from here on out in Israel's story, what they're really trying to get is the right king. A question that drives the rest of the story is this, will Israel ever have the right king? Will they ever have the right king? I want to give you uh, just a review of, of where we are in the story And Perhaps this is helpful to dust off some of um, the Old Testament story that you may not have visited for a while, but Israel is God's people. And Israel has an interesting relationship with authority. Who has authority in this nation? If you know the story, Israel began not as a nation, it began as a family. That's stage one. The family of Abraham. God came to Abraham and called him to himself. And he said, in you, in in your family, all the nations will be blessed. And so their family began to multiply. Abraham was the patriarch. He was the father. He was the authority. They began to multiply. And Egypt, where they were living, said, we should do something about this. And they put them into slavery. Many, many centuries later, they were put into slavery. And so the authority in Israel was Pharaoh because they were in bondage. And God brought them out of bondage with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and he made them a nomadic people where they walked around in the desert for 40 years. And their authority was Moses, who was this man, you know, given authority by God to be their leader, a prophet and also a king-like figure. When they stopped being a nomadic people, stage four, stage three, stage four, they became a tribal people. God separated them into the twelve tribes. Already, they already they had these tribes, but he gave each of them land, and there were elders in each of those uh, tribes of Israel that provided the authority structure. But fifthly. They went into a season where the powers that were around them, the Philistines and the Amorites and the Jebusites, were all gaining um, military power. And so Israel had to be um, ready for this attack at any moment. And so we have the book of Judges, where the, the power was in the power of the judges. These Judges who would be appointed by God and would rise up and men and women who would fight the battles of Israel and lead Israel into battle. And they didn't necessarily come from the same tribe. They weren't just uniting the tribe. They were actually uniting Israel. And so we have an authority found in the judges. But if you read the book of Judges, you see that there's a refrain. The refrain that comes up over, over again in the scripture is, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so then we come to what we have now, this desire for a king, not just to have judges who rise up for short periods of time, but to have a monarch in Israel becomes the desire. And from here, we see the three kings that we're going to be studying the next few weeks, Saul, David, Solomon. And then the next stage in Israel's history is a divided monarchy where there is a division between uh, the sections of Israel. There's a northern kingdom of Israel, and there's a southern kingdom of Judah, and they have their own kings. And this forms the, the story for the rest of the Scriptures, eventually leading to exile, the eighth stage, where the northern kingdom goes to Assyria, and the southern kingdom goes to Babylon, and that is the beginning of of what is called the Diaspora, which is the Jews were scattered all throughout the world. Some of them were still in Israel, but it was a Greek province and then a Roman province, and they no longer have the land or the place that they once did. This is the story of Israel. We come right in the middle of it. When Israel is demanding a king, they want a king to reign over them. Now I want to ask, was Israel doing the right thing when they asked for a king? Three things I want us to see. The first one is this. They had the right longings, but secondly, the wrong demands. And then we'll look at the only answer, the right longings. Believe it or not, Israel is doing something right when they long for a human king. Look at verse 1 with me. Through the first few verses here, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah, they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old. Rude. Rude. Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. This was their demand. But you need to see first that they had the right longings. What were the longings that would drive the elders of Israel to say, we want a king? First, they wanted trustworthy authority. They wanted trustworthy authority. Samuel was old. He's the last judge of Israel. He's been a great judge, but he's appointed his sons who are not great. They are perverting justice, and they are not trustworthy. And so it is a human longing to ask, who is going to reign over us? Who's going to judge us with the right authority? Interestingly, Samuel makes his sons judges, it says, that's actually the very first time that the noun form of judge is used in the Scripture. In the book of Judges, which we're accustomed to think of as those people who judged Israel, they had those stations, actually it just says they were judging Israel. It so happened that God wrote, you know, raised them up for that moment. But this is the first time that the noun form or the title form, you might say, of judge is used. And Samuel here appoints them, which is not what has happened in the past. God has raised up other people based on his own sovereign plan. But here it seems that Samuel is taking some things into his own hands and securing what has been God's design from the beginning to have judges raised up in Israel. And so he secures his sons. As the judges of Israel, but they are not just. And so the people want trustworthy authority, but secondly, they want justice. They say, We want someone to judge us. The word judge and justice are the same in Hebrew, it's the same idea. It's the idea of equity, of fairness. They here take bribes, they pervert justice. And actually, Justice is one of the themes of this passage. Eight times throughout this passage, we see the word justice or judgment used. Justice or judgment is a human longing that is good. I was actually on the website of the Supreme Court this last week, just out of interest. I listened to a few podcasts about the Supreme Court. Uh, I was looking at the cases that they are judging right now. And they are hard. Like, the reason I guess why it goes to the Supreme Court is because it's hard to judge, but it's amazing. Just go look at some of the details of what's being judged as right or proper or equitable in our society. It is not an easy job to know always what is right. It takes someone called. It, it's a desire that we all have, but it's very hard. And just as a brief aside, I'd like to tell us that justice is a good word. I mean, sometimes I, I hear little hints of this from people that are critical of the word justice or that, that there would be a just society. Sometimes from a more right-leaning perspective, we might hear this word used to criticize. It's like justice means something uh, liberal or something like that. But the, the word justice is biblical. The idea of justice, of equity, of fairness, is throughout the Scriptures. And of course, it has to be defined by the Scriptures. And of course, it has to have the boundaries of the Scriptures. And of course, it needs to be not defined as whatever everybody in the world thinks is right, but what God thinks is right. But we want this idea of justice, because justice is a human longing, and it's a good longing. The third thing that they want is security. We see this at the end of the passage in verse 20 where he says that we may also be like the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. As the Philistines get stronger and stronger on Israel's borders, they want a king that they can look to. They want to feel secure. Do you blame them for wanting to feel secure that there would be some organization Behind the battle strategy. These are human longings. These are longings that God gives us, a desire for security, a desire for justice, a desire for good authority. These are things that we want to exist in our society. These are good longings. And all of this, we should see, is not what God is against. In fact, it is very clear to see in the scriptures that God always planned for, anticipated, and wanted there to be kings in Israel. Let me give you a couple of scriptures. Genesis 17, God's promise to Abraham, remember, started out as a family. This is what he says in Genesis 17:6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. So God is at least open to the idea or knowledgeable of the fact that kings will later come from Abraham's line. Or how about this? This is very explicit from Deuteronomy chapter 17. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So In this book of the law, Deuteronomy, God says this is going to happen. This is part of his plan, was for them to have a king. So we may rightfully ask the question why is he upset now? Why is Samuel upset? Look at verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you for they have not rejected you but they have rejected me from being king over them so clearly there's been a misstep clearly they're not just doing what Deuteronomy 17 says that they should do they have the right longings but they make the wrong demand how so What's wrong with Israel's demand for a king? There are at least four things wrong with the way that they approach this question. The first one, and probably the biggest one, is their motivation. They're wrong in their motivation. And we can see this in two words that are used. It's more in English here, but you see it twice where they say, Now appoint for us a king, this is verse 5, to judge us. Like all the nations, like all the nations, such as nations. This is their motivation. We want to be like the nations. What's wrong with that? Well, it's the exact opposite of what Israel had been called to be. God had called Israel out of Egypt so that they would be different than the nations, That was their whole calling. They had different laws. If you look at the laws that God gave Israel, like their purity laws of what was clean and unclean, like their dietary laws of what they could eat or not eat, those things seem strange to us now. They seem very distant to us. But actually, the Scriptures tell us, in part, why He did that. It was so that the nations would see that Israel was different. That they would look at Israel and and say, wow, what nation is like this nation who serves Yahweh. Israel's calling was to be a light to the nations. They were actually to exist open handed and where people could come into this light. They could be circumcised and become part of the Israelite nation and obey the laws. They were called to be unique. It was, in fact, the reason that they weren't like the Amorites and the Jebusites and the Philistines that. That was their calling, to be different. And we see this theme pick up from here all the way through the end of the Old Testament, where Israel desires to be like the nations. This is one of their great sins. And they bring in the worship of the other nations. And they worship the god Molech. And they worship Baal. And they worship Dagon. And they worship Ashtaroth. And they bring in these gods because they want to be like the nation. They want to hedge their bets. They don't want to put everything into Yahweh. They want to have options. And so Israel was motivated to be exactly the opposite of what God called them to be. This is a challenge to us. We believe that the unfolding of the scripture teaches us that we are God's people in the same way that Israel was called to be out and unique and this nation that was separate from the other nations, the church is also to be that place. And so we should ask ourselves, where have we grown tired of the unique and separate calling that God has given to us? Are we getting tired of standing up for the truth? Are we getting weary of the unpopularity that comes with our positions? Are we tired of being different than the people that are around us? Where is it that we want to say, I just want to stop being like God called me to be and be like everyone else? Israel's motivation was the exact opposite of what God had called them to be. That's the first problem. The second problem was their timing. Because there is an urgency and there is an anxiety to this request for a king that is ungodly. It is evident with the way that they speak to Samuel that they are tired of trusting in a god that they can't see and that they can't control. They want the certainty of a physical person. They want to be able to look and say that's that's our king. We can rally behind that person. They're tired of this play where they go to Samuel and then Samuel goes to the Lord and then he prays and maybe the Lord waits for a while and then he speaks to Samuel and then Samuel brings it out and speaks to them. That's too long. You can see a bit of their impatience in verse 19 where Samuel gives them the speech about why they shouldn't have a king and they say to him, no, but there shall be... a king king over us. They're not even willing to give it some space, some prayer, some time. Rather than coming and saying, can we have this? Like Deuteronomy 17 says that they can, they're coming and saying, we demand this now. The third problem with Israel's demand is their stubbornness. They refuse to listen to the godly wisdom of Samuel. Samuel begins his speech in verse 11, where he's been told by God to solemnly warn them about the king. And he says this, these will be the ways of the kings who will reign over you. A line that's full of irony, the word ways there, these will be the ways, it's the same root, it's justice judgment, this will be the king's justice to you. This will will be how fair and equitable the king will be for you. He's using it ironically. He's saying this king will not stand up for justice. Here's what the king's justice is. It can be summarized in one word. Take. 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 Verse 11, he's going to take your son's Verse 13, he's going to take your daughters. Verse 14, he's going to take the best of your fields. Verse 15, he's going to take a tenth of your grain. Verse 16, he's going to take your male and female servants. Verse 17, he's going to take a tenth of your flocks. This is the way, the justice of the king is to take. What's a little intriguing about these numbers is, I think I read one commentator that said this, by modern standards, these seem small. (laughs) politically, tax-wise. The king will be taxing in every sense of the word. He will take your goods and he will take your families and he will take that authority. And this is the way of kings. Even the best kings in a couple of weeks, we're going to see the man after God's own heart, David, same word, took Bathsheba, Uriah the Hittite's wife. Because he's a king, and kings take what they want. Samuel, you can imagine giving this speech, he's just saying it emphatically. He's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take. And this is their response to his warning. Nah. Verse 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us. That we also may be like the nations. Samuel was a great leader in Israel. He was the best judge. He was appointed by God. And even though he was old, he was still their judge and God's man. And if you look, even just the previous couple of chapters, Samuel is not the reason that they're losing battles. The people of God are still winning battles. Winning battles has nothing to do with having a judge versus having a king. It has everything to do with their faithfulness. And so their insistence on a leader that looked like, in their mind, a king was a kind of stubborn unbelief where they wanted what they wanted and they were not willing to listen to godly wisdom. And this leads to really what is the underlying or the ultimate problem with what Israel did. It's actually what the Lord says about their choice in verse 7. He says, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Verse 8, According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me, And serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. The fourth and final problem with Israel's demand is that it is idolatry. It is a kind of idolatry for Israel to demand this king. Because in it, God sees their desires were for a God other than himself. It's not as though they couldn't have done it faithfully, but he sees their hearts And he sees what's there. And their idolatry is not based on a bad thing. Notice that. Some of their later idolatry will be. They will literally bow down to Ashtaroth and Baal. They will literally serve other gods. But here, they want a good thing. But this good thing, this kingship, is a way for them to be idolatrous. It is dangerous because it is leading them away from God. Anything that is bad or anything that is good can become a snare to trusting in God. We see this throughout the Scriptures, that it's not just the false gods that lead our hearts away. It's also the good things, our jobs, our good, called callings that God has placed on our lives, but they can lead us to have an identity in them. They can generate in us greed and power and all kinds of things that are ungodly. Our families are good. They can become a place of unholy attention and focus. Our enjoyment is good. God made us to have bodies, to taste good food and drink, to be sexual creatures, but our bodies can become our God's. Our bellies can be our gods, the scriptures say. We know that we have crossed into idolatry when the good things that God makes available to us become demands. When the good things that God provides us become demands, we will have this and we will have it now is a way of saying that this is where good comes from. This is where good is found. This is what we serve. And that is idolatry. It's serving something other than God. Good longings, wrong demand. Third and finally today, let's look at the only answer. I want to ask a question that maybe is is first seemingly difficult to answer, but what should they have done? We know that they could ask for a king. We know that they did the wrong thing by asking for a king. What should they have done? What they should have done, and this scripture passage is only the beginning of the answer that has unfolded throughout the rest of the scriptures, is they should have asked God for a king and then waited for him to provide one with faithfulness. They should have asked and waited. In other words, the answer to Israel's dilemma here is Advent. The season that we're about to celebrate for the next four weeks is a season of waiting and faithfulness for the good that God has promised us to come in His time. There have been two Advents, main ones in the Scriptures. Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared there was a advent there was a waiting game until Christ came until the right king came onto the scene it took a long time not slow as some count slowness as the scripture says but God has been patient he's wanting all to have faith in him but he puts us in this position of waiting for the coming king We live on the other side of that story and now we're waiting for the second coming of Christ. And we are called to wait wait and look for this King with faithfulness. And to question our demands for other authorities and other things that will give us a sense of what we're looking for. But rather to focus our attention on Christ because He is the King that we are looking for. According to the Bible... It's not wrong to ask for a human king, but we need to do so, as this passage says, in a way that doesn't reject God as king. How do we solve that tension? There is an obvious answer to that question if you just slow down to think about it. How about having a human king who is also God? When Jesus Christ came into the world, Christmas, Christ massed his body, came to the world. He was the long-looked-for Messiah, which means king. Messiah is a kingly title. He is the king of kings. He is the one that we are looking for. He is the one that Israel was looking for, the one who is just, who provides security and provides the right kind of authority that cannot be perverted by injustice. And this is the time of the year where we begin to open ourselves up to to look at our longings. I mean, this is the time of the year where our hearts open up and we think, what is it that I want? I want to be close to family. I want to have an experience of God. I want to have my desires met. And we need to ask ourselves, what is it that we're looking for? And where do we think we will find it? These desires are huge within us, and they're not going to be solved politically by having a red Congress and a red president, or a blue Congress and a blue president at the same time, so that we can pass legislation. It's not going to be solved by returning to some previous era that we think is better than this one, or by envisioning a culture change that we can make happen. It's not going to happen. But when we finally arrive at a family station that we like, where we have the number of kids that we want to have, and we have, we're married if we're not married, or um, whatever it may be, or we're retired, or we have reached this status of income, or whatever it may be. What gives us a sense of what will make things right is all important. That's what Israel wanted. They wanted things to be right. And they look to a king who will only take? Anything other than King Jesus that we put the weight of our desires on will be costly and disappointing. And it will ultimately take from you. It will take and take and take because it is not God, but it's trying to be. Jesus reverses the demands of the King. While the kings of this world, the good things even that we follow, take and take and take, Jesus gives. He gives. He gives up His throne to take on flesh. He gives His energy to be obedient to the Father, to to be the true Israelite who follows after God. He gives of His shepherd heart when people come to Him and they ask for healing and they ask for protection. He meets them where they are and He gives them His time and His energy. He gives away His power to His disciples to heal and to forgive sins. He gives, ultimately, of course, His own life as a ransom for many. He lays down His life rather than taking in what is rightfully due to His name. He gives it away. He gives away his very self. And so he is the king that our hearts desire, that we're longing for. And this time of year, as we begin to look at these kings and we see we're not going to just trash them. These are men that God appointed. Saul, David, Solomon, all of them started out with God's approval and with his blessing on them, and they did many good things but all of them ended poorly. All of them ended up taking things that were not theirs to take. We're not looking to them. We're not looking to anything else. This Advent season is about preparing our hearts and our focus to be on Jesus Christ, the one who doesn't take, but who gives himself. And when he gives himself, he gives it for the life of the world. As we come to the table today, we're going to see the life-giving body and blood of Jesus Christ poured out for us. And as we enter into this season, these next four weeks, these upcoming four weeks, may we prepare our hearts to say, let earth receive her king. This is the king that we long for. Let's pray. Father, we are confronted with the many good things that fill up our lives and that you have said are permissible, more than permissible, even good, even desirable, and yet that make bad kings. They are not the things that we really want. Would you begin to open us up as we enter into this season, open us up to finding our true satisfaction in you. Like David, that king who says, my heart, my soul finds rest in God alone. That you would be the king that we look to, even while we enjoy all the things that you've given us. Above that would be an allegiance, a bowing to the king of kings. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.